the left. And even, thankfully, so many have passed on into glory, but our loss remains the same and deeply acute. Would you give us a vision of what we're aiming at, Lord? Where are we going? What are we doing? What are we laboring for? What can give us hope today that sustains us until the end of ends, the very climax of the age? Give us a glimpse of it, we pray, out of Revelation 11 for our good, for the bold witness we might share with others, for the banishing of the enemy and his designs for evil, and for the exaltation and glory of Christ in all things. In his name I pray, amen. What is God doing in the world to bring about the final outcome of this age? What is God doing in the world to bring about the final outcome of the age? I mean, I mean after everything. After the dead are resurrected and judged between sheep and goats and, and the sheep have their spirits and bodies rejoined together and all those alive captured up with the Lord bodily in His presence. Not waiting their bodies anymore, but unclothed, but clothed. And, and the devil and everything that he was doing destroyed, all evil destroyed. What will we be doing in the very, very end? The end of ends. What is it all for? What are you working for? What am I working for? What are we worshiping for? What are we doing in this world to get to the very end of everything? Remember the Spirit of the living God had moved upon John to show him a vision that he could give to the seven churches in Asia Minor and really to all of us churches who represent the church of Jesus Christ from his two comings, his first and his second. He supplies John a vision of this seventh trumpet. And, and it should tell you right away that if it's the seventh trumpet, it's the perfect trumpet, the complete trumpet. You remember that there are seven seals and there was increasing destruction all the way through number six. Six means the destruction of mankind. But actually, six means the destruction of mankind in every one of the sevens. Whole new meaning of six, six, six. The destruction of mankind at its apex. And then there's an interlude. Where's the church? What's God doing to protect His people? At the end of the seven seals, we saw the seventh seal opened. And silence in heaven for about half an hour, telling us mighty and glorious things were about to happen. Prayers were mingled with fire, and it was cast out on the earth. And now we're given the seventh trumpet. See, all the sevens are in parallel. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and then soon seven bowls. All of them are meant to show us exactly what we're aiming at. What are we going toward? What are we climaxing on? What's this world all going to end up in and as? The seventh trumpet is meant to show us while the fiery, prayer-fueled judgment of God is on the earth, destroying the earth as He promised He would, what are they doing in heaven what are the embodied, gathered, everyone's home, no one's missing, everyone's in their place? What are they doing in heaven? What are we aiming for? What's the ultimate reality that cannot be denied? Well, the answer of the seventh trumpet is listed for us right here is that there is in heaven untold millions of voices 
shouting the praise of God. They sing, they worship, they rejoice. That's what's going on in heaven. That's why our worship service is so packed with songs. That's why singing and and worshiping the Lord here and now is so very important because it so very clearly reveals those who will sing then. Singing now are the people whose hearts are free to sing then. Forget the silly pride. Forget the dead and dull heart. Open your mouth. Open your heart. Lift your voice. Is not Christ worth singing to? Indeed, He is. Who dare with their silence communicate He is not? We saw last week in the last half of chapter 11 that the very life of Christ, as it unfolded on the earth for His 42 months of ministry, is our very model and example that we will follow ourselves. He came at the right time and lived that three and a half years. He was fiery in His proclamation and in His preaching of the Word. He was hated for it and therefore crucified, but God breathed in Him and He was miraculously raised from the dead. So also, in our 42 months, we will follow this same path as His disciples. Our mission is clear. We are followers of Christ. We have an appointed hour. You're not living on the earth by accident. You're here at an appointed time. You bear witness with fiery prophetic boldness, and it too will be hated. We must recognize how vulnerable we are and how likely to preach against sin we will find ourselves hated. And some of us will even die as Christ died, yet we will be raised anew just as He was raised to new life. So don't deviate. Don't create your own path. Don't grieve the Spirit by trying to find a different way to this glorious heaven. If you sin, fly back to Christ instantly before your next breath and find mercy and repentance and forgiveness. Stay close. Christ is coming soon. If there was a way to live, knowing this final worship, unending, glorious, joy-filled gathering awaits us, then my suggestion is that it would include these four activities. The people of God, forgiven and cleansed, drawn near and adopted and loved, must pursue being holy. They must pursue battling for godliness. They must pursue bragging about Christ in bold witness, and they must pursue ever bright worship. Here's my main point for this message today. Here's my message in a summary. Those who fear the name of Jesus Christ and eagerly await His coming will sing now as they will then. Those who fear the name of Jesus Christ and eagerly await His coming will sing now as they will sing then. Live like the coming kingdom of God is already here because it is, having been forgiven, having experienced the love of Christ and the replacing of our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, knowing as we just sang that His righteousness is ours and our sin has been laid upon Him. We are the most kingdom-oriented, generous, eager, worshiping people the world may ever know. 
This picture of Revelation 11, 15 through 19, is a picture of what your life, no matter the difficulties you're in right now, no matter the difficulties that await you, no matter the opposition, the hardship, even death that you will face and I will face, cannot thwart, hinder, or impede but rather are turned by the power of Christ to serve your pilgrim journey to get all the way to Revelation eleven fifteen through 19, all the way into heaven where the door has been laid open by Christ and the Ark of the Covenant is there awaiting you. I want you to look with me for just a moment at verses 15 through 16. I want you to see how all of heaven, while God's work is, is being completed on earth against the unbelievers who rejected repeatedly His offer of salvation, I want you to see what's happening in heaven, and this goes on for eternity. This is the end of ends, beyond and after everything. Verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. The ESV that I'm reading says, saying, pause on that for a moment. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. 24 elders gathered around representing the 12 apostles and the 12 prophets bowed down on their faces and they worshiped God. And if the 24 elders in leadership climb off their thrones and lay down with their faces before the Lord, then surely all the millions around will do the very same thing. Nobody's going to stand in back with their arms folded like this and say, wow, look what those guys are doing up there. Huh, little exaggerated, wouldn't you say? No, no, no. Everybody's face is on the ground in heaven. No naysayers, no bystanders, no observers, no spectators in heaven. All worship God. For every one of them are there because of this white-hot salvation that has welled up within them over the months or years or decades they've lived on the earth. No matter where they lived, God gave them that new white-hot heart beating, not of stone but of flesh that loves the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. The seventh seal is opened. Loud voices are singing. And they're singing, the kingdom of the world, all the kingdoms that are evil in their design, corrupt and depraved, they've now become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. They always were owned by Him, but now He has seized His reign and they no longer need are able to function in evil. In fact, they've been either destroyed or redeemed for His uses. His reign now is fully experienced and fully extended to the ends of the earth. It's what we are awaiting. He's reigning now in heaven, but oh, the wickedness that goes on on the earth. Oh, the wickedness that rises up within our hearts. Oh, the wickedness that happens in secret and in public, but all before the eyes of God. This is the entire company of heaven saying, God, there is no wickedness left. You're reigning everywhere, including hearts, secret rooms, above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth. 
No wonder in 1741, a godly friend asked his godly composer, George Handel, to write the Messiah. And this verse would be its climax. I did some reading on the Messiah because I was so intrigued at how this very verse, and, and, and really all of Scripture is the, the script, the libretto, the content for this glorious oratorio, maybe the most wonderful piece of music ever written by human hands. The hallelujah chorus climaxes with the phrase, you know, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign for. Don't you just love that? I wonder if they're going to let that song in heaven. Great eschatology ensconced in great music. Great theology riding on great melody, harmony, and syncope. Suffering from a stroke and other illnesses and living under debilitating debt. Handel wrote a 260-page score in 24 days, marrying the brilliance of his composing gifts with the words of Holy Scripture. He premiered it, I didn't know this, he premiered the singing and the performance of the entire Messiah at a debtor's prison in Dublin, Ireland. People captive audience, prison, all because of debt. It was a charity event. See how much money we can raise. We will give the money to the debtor's prison, and they can distribute it, and we'll see how many debtors we can free. And then you listen to one of those lines, Comfort ye my people singing out to these people who are so poor that they have to be in prison until someone else on their behalf pays their debt. Enough money was raised to pay a commission to handle and free 142 debtors. And it was told them, your price has been paid. These prison gates are open. The glory of the Lord had indeed revealed itself in the mercy of this musical masterpiece supplied to real debtors. Heaven is singing because real debtors have had their debt paid and the prison gates have been opened and they get to come out by the payment of another on their behalf. They get to come into heaven avoiding the wrath, the judgment, and the condemnation due to sinners. So take heart. Christ not only overcomes the world, as He promises in John 16, 11, He's actually remaking the world so that every one of the kingdoms serves Him. Every human being, you listening by live stream, you by recording, you in this room, every person you talk to, visit, or can imagine, will one day bow the knee before King Jesus. All believers with joy in their trembling, for they have been set free from their debt and from their prison. All unbelievers with hatred in their trembling, for they have refused it and it was too late. 
What is this kingdom of the world that has now become the kingdom of Christ? John tells us plainly in 1 John 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what's the kingdom of the world? It's a whole cluster of godless desires. The kingdom of the world is a cluster of desires that says, I've got way too many things yet to enjoy in this world. Jesus, please do not come yet. You will just be an interruption. Stay away. That's the kingdom of the world. At the seventh trumpet, the end of the world, the evil kingdoms of the world are now besieged and overtaken by Christ to become transformed into the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, For He, Christ, must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. All enemy desires, all enemy peoples, all enemy institutions, all enemy supernatural and spiritual beings, all enemy ideas, All enemy plans, all enemy spirits and desires, they're all under his feet, including the last enemy to be defeated, death itself. This vision of John from the Spirit is the blowing of the seventh trumpet, and it it signals that the very end we're aiming at is the full and complete universal reign of Christ on the earth. So when we're up there singing, what will be our song? Well, let me show you and argue for why we are in fact going to be singing. Your version maybe like mine says saying. Look at verses 17 and 18. Here's a list of what we'll sing about. This is the actual script. These are the things, these are the the list of things in verse 17 and 18 that are what gives you hope today. When we look at each of these so, so briefly, these are what's meant to help you resist temptation today. These are the things that are meant to say, oh, I can't wait to get to heaven. These are the things that are so surrounding and enveloping those who've already entered into heaven right now that were they were invited to return back to their families here on earth, they would say, no, you come join me. Look at what the elders are leading heaven to worship. It's introduced by the word legontes in Greek, which when it introduces a poem like this with poetry set off, I hope it is in your Bible, it should translate singing. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. You can see why I have taken as the main sentence of my sermon, those who fear the name of Jesus Christ and eagerly await His coming will sing now as they will then. The first half of verse 17 says, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who was. 
Why doesn't it include who is to come? Because they're in heaven and he's already there. You don't need the third part if you're done hoping for him to come and set up his kingdom on the earth when he's already done it. So now, praise the Lord, it's who is and who was. He's right in front of them. And he's gloriously reigning over all the earth, destroying injustice all who opposed him and receiving to himself and not missing or losing even one who believes in him whom he has called. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. And now he says, for you have taken your great power, and it's past tense, for this has already happened on the earth, future for us as we read this, but past as the vision unfolds as we look forward into heaven. For you have taken your great power. You've seized your reign on the earth. You've always had it, and now you are exercising your bodily reign on the earth. Your feet, O Christ, have come down and pressed on the gravity of the earth again. The earth in its creation has received its creator. There's footprints Christ-shaped in the snow. You have taken your great power and begun to reign And just as predicted, the nations did not receive it. In fact, the kingdoms of the world raged against you. This is an echo of Psalm chapter 2. This is a glorious image. After this I heard, Psalm 2 reads, what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude. Actually, this is Revelation 19, a, a picture of the same worship service. Crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And have avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him small and great. That's Revelation 19, 1-5. What's stunning is that phrase, the nations raged, and your wrath has come, is not something that causes heaven to go somber. It's something that causes heaven to say, hallelujah. You and I don't have the moral capacity yet to rejoice with God over His justice against evil that He brings with severity and with power. But when we're in heaven... As the Scripture says, we will sing glory and hallelujah to God, for He judges immorality on the earth. It's a sign of spiritual weakness. It's a sign of finitude and our limited vision of God that we don't have the ability to hate sin as much as He does. Oh, that we could hate sin as much as He does. Oh, that these passages would cause us to sing, The nations raged, and by your wrath came, but your wrath came. The nations raged, it says, and God's wrath was leveled on the earth. That's a picture 
of the wrath that He will level down upon all unbelievers who stand in rejection of Christ. Why do the nations rage, asks David in Psalm 2, and the peoples plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Who wants this restrictive sexuality of the Bible? We're casting that off. Don't tell me what not to do. Don't tell me what my desires are are wrong. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Not my first reaction to all the sinful rebellion in the world. God sits in the heavens and He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's terror and fury and wrath from God to set Christ up as His reigning king of kings. For Christ's reign brings destruction on all evil. And we will sing of that forever in heaven. Those who fear the name of Jesus Christ and eagerly await His coming will sing now as we will then. The verse goes on, And the time for the dead to be judged, which is a reference to the resurrection to come, when the dead will rise and be judged, sheep and goats. Paul says it, This way, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Amos prophesied one day God will let justice roll down like a river and waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Justice will roll down. Imagine the justice of God like a mighty ocean held back by the dam of His patient mercy, and it roils and it rumbles, and on a day He will open the gates of that dam, and His justice will roll down like a river, and it won't be water, it'll be fire. Jesus, you remember in Matthew 25, separates the sheep and the goats. He says to the sheep on his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you and from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And just the opposite, the goats will have nothing to do with such acts of kindness and mercy and revealing of a tender and and renewed heart. And so they will be goats and they will be cast away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life, Matthew 25, 46. That's this judging of the dead. That's all in past tense in Revelation 11. And also in past tense, verse 18, and for rewarding your servants... The allusion to the sheep. Both prophets and saints, leaders and believers, holy ones who trusted in Christ even though the world killed them, they will be rewarded. Those who fear your name, both small and great. You see where I get my sentence? If you fear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you eagerly await His coming, sing now as you will then. Those who fear the name of Christ were rewarded as servants 
regarded as prophets and saints, all by the stunning grace of God. Where does this fear come from? Ask yourself right now, if the end of ends is beginning to unfold, if, if, if I'm looking to the horizon, if I'm looking to the east, as it were, and I'm seeing spiritually things unfolding, the question to ask everyone in your family, the question to ask yourself with most intensity is, am I among those who fear the Lord, like this verse says, verse 18? How do I know if I'm fearing His name? What does that look like? Revelation 15 3 and 4 says this, and they sing a song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So the fear of the Lord from Revelation 15 brought right back in to Revelation 11 in my understanding is this. The fear of the Lord is my absolute conviction that He is right when He judges sinners. And that apart from Christ, He would be right if He judged me, for I am a sinner. This accords with Psalm 86, verse 11, your sin, as you know, is always dividing you from yourself. Your sin is always lying to you. It's always lying to me. And it's always trying to divide me from who I am. Who I am in Christ, the new man, is always in battle with the old man that I need to put to death. And the new man and the old man are always divided. So Psalm 86, verse 11 says, Lord, teach me your way that I may walk in your truth, unite my heart to fear your name. There's an agreement with yourself that says, God is right in his condemnation of my sin and of me. I fear his name when he puts me together. Shalom, my insides and outsides, my both sides cohere. I have my love for God, and it overpowers and evicts my love for sin. Unite my heart to fear your name. So that's why the Holy Spirit tells John, tell them about the rewards. Tell them about the rewards. No, not merit. We don't try to get to heaven and sing with all of heaven because we've earned something. There's no earning on top of our salvation. Our salvation is from grace to grace to grace, beginning to end. It's all of grace. No, no, no. The rewards are not our merit. All the merit that we have is in Christ. Think of the inheritance. That's the reward we await. Verse 34 of Matthew 25 again, Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's an inheritance. It's, it's all the riches that God owns and he gives to you because you are his adopted child. And they should motivate you. The rewards are put in front of us here in, in Revelation chapter 11 in order that we would say, yes, Lord, I want the fullness of all the reward that you offer in the inheritance of you and all that you are for me in Jesus Christ. 
Verse 18 goes on to say the destroyers are destroyed on the earth. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is past tense. This is where sin and the devil and evil are all finally destroyed. Jeremiah 51, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags, and I'll make you a burnt mountain. No stone shall be taken from you for a corner and no stone for a foundation, but you shall be a perpetual waste, declares the Lord. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, John says in 1 John 3. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And they will be destroyed. Be careful who you line up with. Be careful who you give a nod to. Do not give yourself any compromise with the enemy. Even ask the Lord if He would be pleased by the Spirit to root out and remove in your life and in mine and in this church and anywhere, anyone, any way, any thought that's been seated by the enemy. Finally, look at this vision and how it ends. Look at the reality that's depicted for us here. This is beyond my capacity for describing to you. Here's my very best effort. Verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened. The temple is the people, remember. Heaven doesn't have a building, it has people. The building was for a short time and it crumbles and falls apart and it's too small. This temple is opened in heaven. Opened, not just in the outer courts, not just in the holy place, but deep into the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. But I don't take this to be a, a physical building. The vision is too grand for that. I don't take this to be an actual box with poles and figurines on the top. This Ark of the Covenant is a symbol, according to Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, pointing forward to Christ. The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Covenant the one that the Hebrews carried around with them into war and they put it back into the temple for David, that was a shadow according to Hebrews 8.5. That wasn't the real, that was a shadow. This image John is receiving of what's in heaven, the door opened into the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant in there, that's pointing to the reality. Isn't it ironic? The whole world thinks stuff like this is real. When that's what's real, this is shadow. This is copy of that. The stuff we have on earth is like going to the gift shop and buying a keychain of a mountain and putting it on your keychain. Or getting a little gift that you could have on your computer or a little emoji on your computer of a mountain. When in fact... The reality is gloriously bigger and more wonderful in this verse. And the Ark of the Covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And all that is to signal God is present and He's judging sin and He's welcoming sinners. God's holiness is on display. This is meant to, uh, for us to think of Christ dying on the cross and the curtain torn from top to bottom that they might enter into the Holy of Holies. But not that building, this Holy of Holies. 
This is more intimate than God has ever been with any human being ever before, including with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, because Adam and Eve had not yet experienced the full mercy and grace purchased by Christ as the reality shadowed by the Ark of the Covenant. The ark in heaven means God will keep all His promises for eternity. The ark in heaven means no one is lost whom He has saved. The ark in heaven means no more will your sin ever be brought up against you ever again because its debt has been fully paid. The ark in heaven means the table and banquet has been set. Come and eat. The ark in heaven means God wants you there and gave His Son's blood and body broken for you and me, sinners, to be there. The ark in heaven means there are no orphans in heaven. Every single one is there because they are adopted. The ark in heaven means God has for His Son a permanent, covenant-bought bride of His love, enjoying a love by Christ never to be broken, never to be rescinded, and never to cool. Everything on earth that you can touch is merely the shadow. And the danger is that there are counterfeits and perverse, distorted examples of these beautiful ideas that are beckoning you and me to sin right now. And I invite you to come out of the shadowlands. Sing! When lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquakes and hailstorms happen, they are nature singing the praise of our great God. Come out of the shadowlands. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. That word eager there means, Lord, I want You to come back so bad that I am willing to forego every possible earthly pleasure without You to gain every heavenly pleasure with You. I forego every possible earthly pleasure without you to gain every heavenly pleasure with you. Those who fear the name of Jesus Christ and eagerly await His coming will sing now as they will then. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Revelation 11 and this beautiful image and picture of what You are preparing for us and working in us and upon this earth. Thank you for the plan that's unfolding. This is the seventh trumpet, meaning the scroll's already been opened and enacted, and these things are all coming to pass. Give us eyes to see how they are progressing marvelously, but more than that, give us eyes to see the beauty of your glory, to fear the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and to eagerly await His appearing, cherishing Him more than we cherish allurements on this world without Him. And singing now the hallelujah chorus, as it were, so that we will reveal, oh, how ready we are to sing then. What a day, Lord. 
What a day when death is all around us. To have you lay before us from your holy word such an inviting vision to come up into your heaven, into your holy of holies, and gather, as it were, around the Ark of the Covenant, the pointer to our Savior, King Jesus the Lamb. I pray, Father, that you would draw powerfully everyone in the hearing of my voice to yourself more closely than they are even now. Believers, to be confirmed and strengthened, I am on my way to this. Grant me to live in light of it. And to unbelievers, to those straying in sin, is this not pulling you back? Is this not a welcome and an an invitation to wonder and hope and joy beyond what you've heard or received from anyone else? Live not in the lies of the shadowlands. Live in the reality of Christ. God, I thank you so much for giving us now the opportunity to proclaim you in worship with our voices in response to your word in Revelation 11. In Jesus' name, I pray, and we now sing. Let's stand. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong. Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good, God is good. Where is His grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood, who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who stands the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ? Oh, sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Confess, 
who are prepared to pray with you up on the right and the left here. Enjoy your meal together and let this benediction from Hebrews 13 be ringing in your ears. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And everyone said together, Amen. You are dismissed. God bless you.